Hi, my name is Susan, and I'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and verses 6 to 16. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age uh, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen. And now let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Great, great job by Susan. Thank you for the reading of the scriptures. Uh, on this Sunday, if you would turn to the right and to the left or behind you, behind your mask, let's give an earnest, happy, happy Thanksgiving to each other before we hear from his word. Let's do that on this Sunday together. Okay. Very, very happy Thanksgiving to you. <clears throat> For those of you who could join us in person and as well as online, I'm Harold, one of the pastors. It is a privilege and a joy to continue to this, uh, through this book of Hebrews. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. We are coming now to what is popular, uh, popularly known as the Hall of Faith. Uh, you might think of it the Hall of Fame, but this is the Hall of Faith. And astounding things were accomplished through believers of old, by faith and through faith, they enforced the justice. Verses 33 and 34, which we did not read, said they shut the mouths of lions. They quenched fiery swords. They chased out uh, foreign armies. God moved. He unveiled miracles when his people have faith. All by faith. Now, 
What is faith? Three characteristics today. We're going to get through the first half. I want you to read and meditate and reflect upon this immense chapter because we're going to come back to it in two weeks. But today, just three characteristics of real faith as given in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, first. Verse 1, it says, faith is the assurance the NIV translations, other translations say the evidence uh, of things hoped for, future things, things that you long for, really want to happen. So there's assurances and evidences of that. And then in the same verse, it turns around and says conviction uh, of things not seen. So I'm not quite sure if you knew or you, if you grew up religious or in the church. Uh, I'm not so sure if this is the kind of faith that you would recognize or define by your own words. Uh, Assurance, evidence, conviction, they go hand in hand with faith. Okay, meaning faith, faith is not close your eyes and please take that blind leap of faith. It's not that. Uh, Faith has never been or never will be. Shut off your minds and just let good, positive things fill it. Uh, Faith is not wishful, fanciful thinking that your alma mater is going to beat that rival school yesterday. That's just a wild gamble. (laughs) It's a chance. Uh, Faith is not trying to muster up positive thinking. Happy-go-lucky, just trying to train yourself that if you think positively, everything's going to turn out positive. No. No. uh, From verse 1, faith is assurances, evidence, convictions of unseen realities, but the invisible realities are just as real as the things we see. And even future things we hope for. Now, how so? How does that kind of assurance, how does that kind of certainty and confidence and conviction come? Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, faith comes from the hearing of the word of God. Faith comes from the word of God. Faith is summoned and created and strengthened by the word of God. Just as God created the entire universe, all life exists simply by the word of his mouth. So how do you and I get more faith? Like, how do you get faith? It has to be created. It has to be given to you. It has to be called out and strengthened by his word. And in his word, you ought to increase assurances, evidence, knowledge, understanding, and conviction. Please look at verse 3 again. On your phones or if you bring your Bibles, please look at verse 3 again. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's what we just said. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you see, faith is reasonable. It's reasonable. Because in turn, what faith does is by faith, we understand things. By faith, we reason out things. Namely, this visible material world can't be all that there is. 
faith reasons that the visible physical world on its own actually doesn't make much sense. All right, so listen to me clear here. Real faith is certainly much more than reason, but real faith is not less than reason, and only by faith makes all reasoning possible. Because by faith, you reason out things. You understand things. For, for instance, if the physical, visible world is all that there is, that means we came from nothing, we're destined and headed for nothing. Right? Dust to dust. If we came from nothing, and all of us are headed for nothing, we came from just a random accident, chaos, somehow miraculously turned into order. That takes faith to believe in that. If we came from nothing and we're headed for nothing then what does everything in between mean? Nothing. Nothing. I'm sure you guys have heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial. That was a very, very widely publicized famous trial. If you took any history, that was a famous trial. Before that trial, the same attorney, Clarence Darrow, successfully defended two university students. He won the case. For the capital offense of murdering another person for the intellectual experience of it. Attorney Darrell, here's how he argued it, quote. Is there any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life on it? Your Honor, it is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. Namely, the philosophy, if God is dead, if God is dead, you believe in nihilism, anything goes, and therefore morality means nothing. Morality is dead. Look, society can teach you, society can pressure you, society can counsel you that this is right versus wrong. Even society and you can deeply feel that something is right versus wrong. But if the visible material world is all that there is, you cannot account for it. You cannot really explain why that would be right versus wrong. Because why should human beings rise above the behavior of natural animals? Why should we rise above evolutionary science? Why should we just carry out our natural instincts and desires? You know, legal verdicts, as in that case, and some of you, of course, are well aware of Kyle Rittenhouse this week in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where the jury cleared him of all charges. And you can agree with that. And we ought to respect the rule of law and the justice system for sure, for sure. But I tell you as a pastor and those who have faith in God and believe in a higher law, legal verdicts are not moral verdicts. Legal court cases do not actually convey to us what is actually right versus wrong necessarily. Because there's a lot of things you can play around with the law. I would just dare say that those of us who are non-white would suspect and have experienced that if that is justice for Kyle, we just want that justice to be equally applied for all. For all. That you can run around with the rifle during a riot, during a looting period, and not be shot down and not be found guilty. There would be a lot of suspicion of that. But you see, faith, people of faith, what does that mean? Does that mean they just don't think? No. Verse 3 says, you understand and reason things better. Now, let's just put morality aside. 
See, faith is immensely reasonable. It's reasonable. Morality means nothing without faith in the higher law, a higher God, who would actually come and transcend and say, no, this law was actually unjust. Let's just leave that aside. Uh, I think life especially doesn't make sense. And certainly I have not reached this point, and maybe few of you would ever reach this point. Life really doesn't make sense when you do get everything you want. Let's say you get everything you do want. Everything that the material, physical world has to offer. Every pleasure. All the wealth. All the possessions. All the property. All the security. And then you might find the book of Ecclesiastes is so, so true, which is summed up by C.S. Lewis in these words. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's reasonable. Faith reasons, if this is all that there is, it actually doesn't make much sense. Here's a second characteristic of real faith. Faith is reasonable. Second, faith is risky. Risky. Very risky. Verse 7. What did Noah do? I would imagine on a sunny day, Southern California weather for weeks and months on end, not a storm cloud in the sky. He heard from God. Faith was created. And he dropped everything, condemned the world, stopped doing everything that the world was doing. And he was busy constructing an ark. <laughs> Faith is risky. Oh, and then beginning in verse 8, we come to great father of faith, Father Abraham. Who happens to be revered by three world religions, Judaism, Islam, and of course Christianity. Because when he first heard from God, he decided to leave his father's homeland. He decided to leave his home. He decided to leave everything that was comfortable and familiar to him. And then, therefore, he risked all controls over his life. Verse 8 reads, God told him, I want you to leave. I just want you to go. <laughs> and he must have asked, uh, God, where am I supposed to go? Verse 8 tells us, not knowing where he was supposed to go. If Abraham even asked God, you told me to go. Can you tell me where I'm supposed to go? God replied, must have replied, I'll tell you later. Oh, no, 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 God, I don't know if you heard me right. You're the one that told me to go. Can you give me some kind of location? I mean, give me some kind of timeline here. Maybe some milestones. Just give me a sign. By faith, not knowing where he was to go. Verse 9. His wife, Sarah, well past the age of child-rearing. That's a euphemism. She was very old. In another verse we read, Abraham was as good as dead. He was really old. Her womb was death. She had a barren womb. An angel comes along one day and promises you're going to have children. And then you're going to have so many children, they're going to be like, Stars in the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand on the seashore, which we just read. Sarah laughed. She laughed in the face of an angel. She was not naturally a person of faith. She's like you and I. And yet, 
God still fulfills that promise. And if Sarah dared to even ask, how would she did? How can I, a woman whose womb is closed, who is way too old, how in the world can I bear a child? When can I bear a child? What did the angel say? What did God tell her? I'll show you later. And then in verse 17, which we will get to in a moment, God asked Abraham to take the very child who came by way of miracle through an old, old dead womb, Isaac, and God actually told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And if Abraham dared ask God, why? That makes no sense. See, that's not reasonable, is it? That's not rational, is it? You delivered this child as a miraculous fulfillment of promise, but then you want me to now turn around and sacrifice and offer him back to you? So here's what God did with our great father of faith, Abraham. Here's what he did. God, can you tell me where I'm going? I'll tell you later. God, how and when will this happen? God said, I'll show you later. God, why would you want the son back that came by way of miracle? I'll explain later. Now, I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room likes a faith that is reasonable, that is rational, that is acceptable. But faith is also risky. It's both. It's always both. Many people, of course, want things just right, and the pandemic just threw all that, that stuff off kilter, which is uh, why I think so many people are still enraged, always on edge, just worn out, right? Because we had gone under this delusion that life should be something that I could kind of predict and control and manage up to a certain point. And a lot of people in this room, you want things nice and neat, you want things to come the way that you can kind of plan and predict for, but not so with faith. You know, oftentimes with faith, yes, it's reasonable, and then it's risky. There are some people in this room right now that God is clearly calling you to something. You know God's calling you to it. You don't even want to talk about it because you don't want to do it. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. It might be a career change. It really might be a change of your entire career. And you're scared about what's on the other side. But you're coming to a point that in your career, you have finally figured out, this has nothing to do with God. I have never gotten into this job because of God. There's nothing about God when I do this job. There's no purpose and meaning about God through this job. And therefore, you sense this different direction. Some of you are in very, very toxic, unhealthy relationships. It is abusive. It's just cyclical. It's a trap. You're scared about what's on the other side. Now, faith is risky. Enormously risky. Now, please hear me loud and clear as your pastor, you need to make certain that this is God who is calling you. You're not just going out and say, well, I like risks. I just want to take unnecessary risks to exercise my faith. 
No, but God did call Father Abraham, leave your home, you're going to have a child, and I want you to give your child back to me, and none of that I will really tell you up front and explain why. This is like when Jesus called his followers. Hey, family, friends, Jesus, if he's real to you, and you believe in him, and you want to follow him, Throughout the scriptures, here's what he asked for up front, up front. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, your homes, your identity, your livelihood, your future security, your comforts, your hopes, your habits. Risky. I think our church, starting with myself and with a lot of you, you say you have faith, but it's not real until you take the risk. You say you have faith, but it's not exercise if you don't follow God. You say you have faith, but you don't want to obey God in that area because of you're afraid of what's on the other side. Faith is both reasonable and risky. Oh, here's what verse 6 reads. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without reasonable and risky, it is impossible to please God. And God recognizes and rewards those who take steps of faith. Third, last one. Faith is revolutionary. Faith is revolutionary. I've shared this before, but it's so good. I can't stop sharing it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was a young physician, later on he turned into a pastor, was a candidate for prime minister uh, in the United Kingdom. As a young physician, someone much older and at the top of his profession came over to his house because he had just lost the woman he was about to marry. And that older doctor just stared into a fire in his home for two hours straight, never looked up. And here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes that evening. It shook me to the foundations. I saw the vanity of all human greatness. I realized all the success in the world, all the status in the world, all the education in the world, all the money in the world was insufficient to face life. That evening, Martin Lloyd-Jones moved from a reasonable position on God to a revolutionary encounter with God. This happened for me in undergraduate college after the loss of my dad. I thought about my whole future directions and dreams and values and why I was pursuing, pursuing what I was pursuing. But he moved from a reasonable, you know, arm's distance, safe, nominal, cultural, casual, yeah, I believe in God, to a revolution. My friends, have you? Have you? Have you moved to a revolutionary faith with God? 
How would you know? A revolution takes place. Now, I'm not talking about it has to be all dramatic, all sensory, and you know for sure like an angel showed up in your room and you could describe what the angel looked like and what the angel talks like. No, 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 no. It could be so gradual. It could be uh, step by step. You might not even notice what's going on, but like years later, you look back and people will tell you, people who love you and are closest to you say, brother, sister, what's happened? There's certainly changes. There's a revolution that has taken place. What kind of revolution? What kind of revolution? What's the revolution that happens to people of faith? Now, it is not what you would expect. It's not what you would like. And it's not something to brag about in today's world. Faith is reasonable. Faith is risky. It's revolutionary. And every revolution has this charge. Go out there and change the world. Go out there and rock the world. Conquer the world. Certainly, yes. But Jesus always rocks you first. Jesus always revolutionizes his people first. He changes you first. What's the revolutionary change look like? And I'm going to do my best to describe this because it's said twice. We read in verse 13, and then it's read in verse 39. It says, all these people died in faith. They didn't receive the promises, but they still desired a better country, and God has prepared, prepared, for, some, prepared for them something better. What kind of revolution takes place if you really have faith in the God of the Bible? Um, you actually, it's more about losing than gaining things, at least for now. It's more about still hoping the assurance that you're going to get what you hope for. The conviction of invisible future realities are yours, but you're still waiting. It's still incomplete. It's still not for real yet in a tangible sense. Please read through Hebrews 11. You know, the impact and the power of God's word is so much more effective when you don't just listen to this for about 45 minutes on a Sunday here, but you actually go back and reread it, reread it, reread it, think about it. And it starts to percolate through your brain and then seep down into your heart. And then actually starts to take a hold of you. And faith is created and faith is strengthened. Please do this as we return in two weeks. But for now, the revolution that takes place through people of faith is, again, something that you might not like. And it's not like what you would expect. Back to Father Abraham. The prototypical revolution. Here's what happened to him. He left his fathers, he left his home, he left his culture, he left his former religions. You know, they believed in gods, they worshipped gods there in the ancient Near East, wherever he was called from. He left his upbringing. Amir Slavov would describe the Abrahamic revolution as, it means that you are no longer Asian or American first and then Christian. When you undergo a revolution of faith, you, as a Christian, comes preeminently first. You know, thinking about this passage of Abraham leaving his home and going to a foreign country, not even know, knowing where he's going, it made me miss David and Susanna Nam all the more. You know, our first homegrown missionaries we sent out to Taiwan, teach at Christ College, and watching Instagram through 
Susanna. I was so blown away. I admired David. I knew he was a smart guy, but I didn't know he was this smart. Did you know he recently preached a sermon in Mandarin? He's been learning Mandarin. Of course, his kids are better because they have an immersion program up in Pasadena. They coach him and tutor him. But he preached a sermon in Mandarin. A man, an Ivy League grad, a PhD of Fuller, moves his entire family to a foreign country so he can start back from what? Zero? Learn a foreign language? They're undergoing a revolution. You know, revolution, revolution takes place in Abraham's life, not only leaving his father and mother and homes and religions and culture and upbringing, but it's actually letting go of his dream come true. Abraham underwent a revolution where all, even his future hopes and dreams in his one and only son, Isaac, would be laid at the altar back to God. That's how revolutionary faith can be. Your dream come true. Your most precious. Your most beloved. And then all your future hopes and dreams in that person. Hebrews 11 records great father of faith, Abraham, because it recounts Genesis chapter 22. On one morning, Abraham woke up and he prepared all the materials to offer a burnt sacrifice that day. That is mind-blowing in and of itself. I don't know how many fathers in this room, if you happen to be told, I want you to offer your one and only child to me, would wake up one day fully prepped and then begin hiking up the mountain with your son. But then in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 22, a startling thing occurs. You read it right there in verse 5, where Abraham, looking at the place from afar, the mountaintop of Mount Moriah, turned to his young men, and then he says, I and the boy will come back to you. Or we will come back to you. What? Abraham, uh, will you, you not know your pronouns? Are you confused? Is that just a figure of speech? Verses 17 to 19. Here, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you know why Abraham dared to say, I and the boy will come back to you? Do you know why he said, we will come back to you? Because according to Hebrews 11... He had the kind of faith that believed in a God of life, not a God of death. He had the kind of faith that God would resurrect his son even after he died. Abraham had the kind of faith that God would resurrect even after the sacrifice. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And I want you to know that that faith just doesn't come out of the thin air. Abraham himself had seen and heard God promise something about his wife. Then Abraham and his wife received that which God had promised through the old dead womb of his wife. Isaac came forth. And therefore, you see, faith, when it's tested, exercised, proven right, God always promises, God always delivers. Faith grows, and then he comes to this climactic moment at Mount Moriah, and he's willing to go through with this grisly act. He's got the blade in his hand in midair. He has his son strapped to an altar. He made it to the mountaintop. And he's about to plunge that knife through the heart of his own son. But an angel comes out and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop, stop. Because God doesn't want your son. That's not the sacrifice God wants. But Abraham, way down your lineage will come a much better son who will be the perfect sacrifice. Born from your loins, his name will be Jesus Christ. It'll be God's one and only son. And upon that same mountain, that same mountain, my friends, no other mountain, the same geographic location, God would take his one and only son. He would lay out Jesus Christ upon an altar. And God would undergo the revolution of losing his own son. Of losing his own son. For only the blood of Jesus Christ can cover the sins of the world. Two applications as we close real quick. Faith is reasonable. Faith is risky. Faith is revolutionary. First thing you ought to do. You ought to do. You should question and examine every faith for its reasonability. If you've grown up in church and you, you are a Christian, I don't know if you've ever done this with your own Christian faith. You ought to. You should. Better do it now than later. And you better do it with your kids before they graduate high school. <laughs> examine every faith for its reasonability. You should ask anything you believe in or follow, give your life to. Is this reasonable? Is it credible? Does it have longevity? Does it have integrity? Does it invite scrutiny and accountability? Is it reasonable? And the former legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, Lee Strobel, check out his book, Case for Christ, Case for Faith. Wife became a Christian. He first thought of an expletive in his mind. But in the following weeks or months, his wife had so many positive changes that he was so intrigued he had to go investigate this Christian faith that it changed his wife. You know, by the way, of course, berating and belittling and bemoaning and complaining against your spouse will never change that spouse for good ever. But these kinds of positive changes so intrigued Lee. And so he went about for two years interviewing and researching believers and skeptics who are experts in their field. One question you want to ask, was Jesus really crucified? Was there a real Jesus who was crucified? Even atheist historians would say, the overwhelming evidence, it's indisputable. Of course, Jesus was executed. He was crucified. He gives you the name of one of these, one of these historians. Second question, was Jesus' tomb empty? Was there an empty tomb? Lee Strobel discovered that it would have been impossible for a movement, a fledgling movement, founded on, he has risen, he has risen, all it's a make or break, 
uh, based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it would be impossible for a movement like that to explode in the same city where Jesus was publicly executed just a few weeks before. The body would have been found either in the tomb or elsewhere to expose this whole movement as a fraud, to falsify it. So Lee Strobel reached this unexpected conclusion after two years of reasonable research. He reached the conclusion it would take more faith for him to remain an atheist than to become a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. And so he did. The last, what, 35, close to 40 years now? You know, notice, for Lee Strobel, he didn't become a Christian because he was so scared of death. He didn't become a Christian because he likes believing in myths and fantasies. He didn't become a Christian because he needed a psychological crutch. He became a Christian because he actually believed it's factual. It's more reasonable. It's more reasonable. Second, last thing. Question every faith. Examine every faith. And I believe Christianity invites all the scrutiny and accountability above all any other movement you could ever find. It's an open book, literally. Here's second. Faith in the God of the Bible loosens your grip. Loosens your grip. You know, truth be told, every preacher, any pastor who's conscientious and wants to do a good job on Sunday... Uh, it's really hard to get a deep, relaxing sleep on Saturday night. You're kind of tense. You're kind of uptight. And God's been answering that prayer over the years where my sleep has gotten a little better. It's a hit or miss, but gradually a little better. Where I trust in God that the next day he will work it out to his own ends. But man, we got a lot of people up here, right? A lot of tension. Because you're holding on to something for dear life. Now, why are you stingy? Why do you get so easily offended and then hold on to it? Why can't you forgive? I mean, you dread this week again, Thanksgiving, seeing relatives or family. Why can't you forgive? Why are you so worried, my friend? Family, why are you so worried? You're holding on to something too tight. Oh, and that famous hymn says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Faith in the God of the Bible allows you to let some things go. Faith in the God of the Bible will create a revolution in your life where you can now lose rather than always insist on keeping and holding and winning everything in sight. You know, why, why would God loosen your grip? Why would God, you know, Pastor, I understand you're talking to me that Hebrews 11 is mostly about people losing things and gaining things, at least for now. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's what I read here. Go check it out yourself. Why would God do that, though? I mean, why can't I have God, faith in God, and get everything in this world, too? What's wrong with that? Well, here's why. Look at verse 16. Either God is your foundation, 
and everything will last and everything will be secure and everything will be made right no matter what your life looks like right now. If God is your foundation by faith, no matter what, everything might be falling apart in your life right now, but there's something so much better prepared for you. Or something else is your foundation. Something else is your foundation. It's giving you the juice right now. It gives you adrenaline. It makes you feel proud. It makes you feel like you can talk about something or brag about something in front of the community that you live at. It makes you feel good about yourself. And whatever else that foundation is, it is quicksand. Utter quicksand. Everything is insecure. Nothing will last. All of it will perish. No matter how good and strong everything looks right now. God wants to loosen your grip, oh child or son or daughter of God, because he wants you to be founded back onto himself, a foundation, a designer, an architect, a city that will never fade or disappear. And how exactly would God loosen my grip? How would God pry open these hands to start letting go of things and not holding on to them so neurotically tight? It's only when something better, something far better, I can grab a hold of. <laughs> Listen. Christianity is not the religion and the business, which I grew up tempted to think this. Oh, it's always about just give up this, sacrifice that, let go of this, fast from this, stay away from that. If that's all you know, you don't have faith yet. You loosen your grip on the things you are uptight about right now because something far better has come and you want to hold and grab that. And I'll tell you morning this, uh, this morning, my friends. Jesus reasoned. Jesus took and suffered all the risks. And he himself underwent a revolution of losing his own life so he could grab a hold of you and never lose you. Michael Card says of Genesis 22, when Abraham offered Isaac up on that altar on Mount Moriah, what Abraham was asked to do, he's done. What you are asked to do, he's already done. That's why you can lose that stranglehold, even on your child. Romans 8, verse 32. For he who gave up his own son, if God gave up his own son, loosened his grip on his own son so he can have you and never lose you, how will he not also graciously provide and give you all things? Please, friends, pray for me as I pray for you. Let's loosen the grip. Let's hold on to something far better. These were the saints of old. These were the saints of old. 
May this be the saints even here and now. Christ Central and LA throughout the world. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you that as we come to your word, you create and call out faith. You are the one that brings new life to replace a former life. You are the one that helps us to let go so we can grab a hold of that which is far better. Far better. A life, a love, a hope, an inheritance. A city, a kingdom, a home, a family, a wealth, an identity, a future that never fades, all locked up in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, bring us to him. May we worship you and thank you once again this day and throughout this week. Receive the glory now as you minister to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.